Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web, with breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a monologue plus a dialogue. This is you sitting slack-jawed in public wearing headphones. How are you today? My name's Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. I'm in a hurry. Can you hear it in my voice? Uh, my sister is in town with her uh, three girls, my older sister and her family. Uh, my nieces are here, and I want to go see them. I have to go see them. And then I also have to go drop off uh, my brother-in-law's luggage at a hotel by the airport. He's been in town with his girlfriend. So it's complicated. I've had family in town here in Los Angeles nonstop since February 1st. I just want to get that out there. I love my family. I love seeing everybody. It's great to see everybody. But uh, I will admit it is logistically taxing having company in town consecutively. And uh, you know what? Uh, the big thing is, or one of the big things, is that I always feel guilty. I always feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm not being a good enough host. I'm too busy working. Uh, I'm not bringing the proper energy. I'm not making enough time and so on and so forth. You know, there just aren't enough hours in the day. 
There really aren't. That's a problem of mine, that feeling of not having enough hours uh, in the day. And uh, I have these fantasies, recurring fantasies, about living in a small, beautiful, simple town where I know all of my neighbors. uh, And there's a tremendous sense of community. And I move at about uh, half or even less than half of my current speed. But, you know, where, where do I go? What town is this? Surely I'm imagining a utopia that doesn't exist, right? Wrong? I don't know. You know, I've been having this conversation with myself uh, for uh, over a decade. You guys ever do this? Am I the only person who does this? So let me read uh, some mail, and then we'll get started with Scott O'Connor, today's guest. Uh, The first letter comes from a listener named Steve, who writes, Hey Brad, I'm a recent fan of your show. I heard of it through Twitter, through Amira Gonzalez's tweet, I think. And even as an avid podcast consumer, my ear holes still suffered from a lack of literary conversation. I love the podcast for the same reasons others have expressed in letters that you've read during your monologues. I've been listening to your older episodes on the app, and I just wanted to say two things. When I listened to your first show, the one with Jonathan uh, Jonathan Evison, episode number one, You were telling him about what you wanted the show to be. I think the show is exactly that. Conversations with writers to learn about them as people, not literary analysis. Also, uh, I'm a student who delivers pizza for cash, so most of my podcast consumption takes place while working. When I was listening to your interview with Jordan Castro and you guys were talking about pizza delivery stories, I was on a delivery. Your conversation inspired me to take all of my pizza delivery ideas saved as notes in my iPhone and start a Tumblr account to get them out into the world. Here's my first post as an example. I pulled up to a house with two small boys in the driveway. They were playing basketball and it was raining. Each boy had a basketball. The smaller boy said, Did you come from the pizza man? I said, I am the pizza man. I saw his eyes fill with respect. So Brad, uh, if you have a second, please check it out over at everypizza.tumblr.com. If not, no worries. I love the show. Don't stop it. Signed, Steve. So thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Much respect to a a fellow pizza delivery man. We are a tribe. (laughs) We stand together. I love that job. I've said that before. I'll say it again. I will always say that. It's the job I was born to do. Everybody loves a pizza man. You know? And just like everybody loves the flower guy. You bring people pizza. You bring people flowers. How do you argue with that? And, and it's a noble service, both of these things. Even if uh, the, the delivery part sends fossil fuels you know, up into the atmosphere. I think what I might do is uh, start a pizza slash flower shop where you know, if you order a pizza, you automatically get a bouquet of flowers and uh, vice versa. You order a bouquet of flowers, you automatically get a large pizza. What do you think of that? <laughs> I like that idea. Am I a genius? Am I going to be on the cover of Forbes? So the next email comes from a listener named David. 
He writes, hi, Brad, other people is amazing, blah, blah, blah. You know this, or I hope you do anyway. I would love it if you interviewed more poets. My favorite interviews of yours, and I've listened to almost all of them, gosh darn it, have been the poets. Melissa Broder, Gregory Sherl, though I guess he writes primarily fiction now, Heather Crystal. Uh, great new episode, by the way, with Heather Crystal. Produce your screenplay, Man of Letters, or so help me God. This email has taken a decidedly more threatening turn than I had intended. All my best, David. So, thanks, David. That's uh, that's interesting. I haven't uh, heard that before, I don't think. Though, when you mention it, I think sometimes talking to poets uh, does yield a bit of a different show. Uh, I think uh, recently of Elisa uh, Gabbert, that episode, I think in the past of Michael Robbins, Though, you know what, uh, Elisa, it's arguable. She sort of writes nonfiction. It's kind of this hybrid form. But uh, my point is that your point is well taken. And I'm glad that you liked the Heather Crystal episode. I've gotten a little flack from that one. from uh, Well, at least from one person. Some, some woman on Twitter said that I was mansplaining uh, in that episode. Have I mentioned this? I got this tweet and it made me self-conscious. I started to feel bad about myself. I didn't know exactly what mansplaining was when I read the tweet, though I could sort of discern. Uh, I guess what she was saying was that I was talking too much. I was talking over Heather too much. I don't know. I didn't mean to. I was just doing what I normally do, though maybe I was more verbose than uh, I usually am. Maybe I was caffeinated to a uh, excessive degree. I'm glad that you liked the episode is what I'm saying. But, uh, you know, you probably liked it because you're a guy and uh, you enjoyed listening to me mansplain. And uh, as for my screenplay, Man of Letters, the uh, comedy that I wrote about a 40-year-old spoken word poet who lives at home with his parents, uh, I tried. I made a valiant effort to get that thing produced here in in, uh, Hollywood. And uh, the truth is that I got kind of close. That script uh, got me meetings all over town, believe it or not. (laughs) Got to meet with some interesting people, but ultimately no one would bite. You know, it was all these cordial meetings with uh, people telling me that they like love the script, you know, in all capital letters. You know what I'm talking about? People always do that. They always love things. I've said that before. So, uh, you know, my comedy, my attempts at comedy... They always seem to be received as uh, quirky. I'm too quirky. Whatever that means. So thanks again, David. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Scott O'Connor. His new literary thriller is called Half World. It's out there now from Simon & Schuster, and it is generating buzz and earning rave reviews, uh, and even comparisons to the likes of Graham Greene and so on. So it's a very timely book, uh, thematically speaking, dealing with our intelligence community and the shadowy corners of its history and how those things might uh, perhaps apply to uh, the present day and so on and so forth. I'm very pleased to have Scott here on the program, and this right here is our conversation. Uh, it was a CIA experimentation program that started in the mid-1950s called MK Ultra, And it was basically their brainwashing and mind control program, attempted brainwashing and mind control program. And it was, this, it was actually a, a pretty gigantic project that had all these different tentacles where they were trying to test different substances and different techniques like hypnosis to see if they could uh, either maybe change someone's personality or get information from someone, uh, private information, um, or if they could condition soldiers or intelligence agents not to disclose information. But one of the things they used was LSD, which at the time, <laughs> well, it seemed, and it seems crazy now, but at the time in the mid-50s, LSD had only been around for about 10 years. It had been invented in the, the mid-40s, really. And so there hadn't been a lot of research done on it. And it just seemed like this magical drug. Uh, and and so they the thought was, well, if you give this to people, especially without their knowing, can you then kind of steer them one way or another? And we've since found out that really that's kind of the exact opposite of how right. LSD <laughs> seems to work. But they didn't know this at the time. And they, so, they tried the same thing. I don't know if it was part of MK Ultra, but didn't they do the same thing with ecstasy? That I don't know. I'm not as up on the more modern history of this type of, of research, but it's I entirely possible. I was going to say, I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was definitely a, a phase of... You know, in the, especially in the mid-50s where science was everything. You know, this was the space age. It was the, the rocket age. And LSD is a synthetic drug. You can make it in a lab. So there was this sense of promise to it that this isn't something that grows out in the wild. We have to go find or you have to cultivate. We can make this. We can weaponize it. We can make as much as we want or as much as we need. And maybe we can, uh, you know, maybe we can alter it in certain ways uh, so that it's a little more targeted. But it turns out that that wasn't really... That wasn't really what happened. Uh, they didn't have much much success getting people to do things on so, LSD. Okay, so what are they doing? They're bringing people in to some sort of uh, covert site, laboratory? Yeah, well, they had a number of different ways of doing it. They, they tested it overtly, meaning with some forms of consent at university. So Timothy Leary at Harvard was part of this program. Well, Ken That's how Kesey, he got, was it? Right, right. There were people at Berkeley. There were people who, uh, and, and psychiatrists at the time who were given LSD by the CIA. And it was it was out in the open. It was sort of, do you want to try this with a patient? Is a patient okay with trying it? Are students okay? Of course, college students were probably like, great, let's, you know, let's get involved with this. <laughs> um, but then there, were, there was non-consensual testing at prisons and mental institutions. And then there was a, a specific project, which is where the book... Uh, picks up where they opened safe houses in Greenwich Village in San Francisco, at least that we know about. There may have been more. Those are the two or three we know about. There were two in San Francisco, one in Greenwich Village, where they hired prostitutes to bring 
guys in off the street back to these apartments and then dose them secretly with LSD while the intelligence agents and operatives watch from behind two-way mirrors or, you know, with surveillance equipment at the time, audio equipment or photographic equipment. Okay, so but what, were, the, uh, were the prostitutes having sex with these guys while they're on acid? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was definitely the, the actual project name. The CIA, you know, the, the project is called MK Ultra, which is sort of a nonsense. It sounds like, it sounds like a carb-free beer. Right, right. It seems like, yeah, it's going to be something that's cold filtered right. and refreshing. Uh, yeah, but most of most intelligence project names are nonsense names uh, by design. They're not supposed to be the kind of thing where if you heard the name, you would go, I know what these guys are up to. Sure, yeah. Um, but they they broke their own rule for these these brothels that they made. And the actual name, at least of the one in San Francisco, uh, was Project Midnight Climax. <laughs> which is like so so much of a groaner yeah. uh, and in the congressional hearings that came out of this in the mid 70s this was brought up and it was like you could just see these kind of you know old guys these congressmen they were all congressmen at the time they got a real big laugh out of you know the actual project name but yeah there was oh no there was uh, there was sexual activity there was drug activity there and was... then just these agents sitting on the other side of these two-way mirrors watching pretty much pretty much um and and most of the Actual documentation was destroyed by the agency in the early 70s. So we don't know. And that was why, for me, the idea of, of dealing with this in fiction was so appealing because it was like there was this huge memory hole of, of what may have happened as opposed to what we know happened, which is very little of what we actually know. Why did they destroy? Just uh, because they don't want people to know. <laughs> you know it's a good, that's a good question because they destroyed things in the early 70s. So... This was about the time the Vietnam War had really turned. You know, the Pentagon Papers were out. Watergate was just starting to happen. And there was really a sense in the government, I think, that the tide had turned, that for a long time, the media especially was on their side. You know, Time Magazine was like carrying water for every administration. And you started to have journalists like like David Halberstam in Vietnam or like Seymour Hersh, who were you know, we're, we're holding the government to account for these things. And I think there was really a sense, this is just my opinion, but I think there was a sense, especially in the intelligence world of, you know, the golden days are over almost. And we've been doing all this stuff. And if this comes out, it's going to look really bad. And so they destroyed a lot of records in the early 70s. And they were called to account on it. In the mid-70s, there were a couple of congressional, lengthy congressional hearings where CIA uh, the heads of the CIA were called up and were asked about files that they didn't destroy. And some of the files they didn't destroy had to do with things like assassinating foreign leaders, trying to kill Castro, uh, opening mail. They had a huge mail opening operation, which is kind of an echo, an early echo of the NSA surveillance programs. Say, now. Yeah. But this was like physically like steaming open <laughs> envelopes at post offices and looking inside. It was it seemed like it would be an incredibly tedious you know, if you went into the CIA and you ended up in some post office in Newark, like steaming open letters and okay. So and wait a minute, in. but wait a minute. If you're in, if you're involved in that as a CIA operative, and obviously the United States Postal Service is uh, the government, so sure. So they can just say, do they just walk in and say we're the CIA, we're here to open some mail, or do they? Um, send a, a secret operative in there to get a job at the post office, and he does this covertly. Or... I, I think with the postal projects, it was basically we're the CIA and we need an office in the post office. Now, the other uh, wrinkle to this is that the CIA, uh, from its charter, is not supposed to operate on American soil. Okay, it's so our foreign intelligence service. This is what I want to ask you about this too, because I'm not an expert, but I've read um, 
some pretty convincing opinions. I think of reading Gore Vidal essays and like how anti CIA he was, mm-hmm. um, in the, in the sense that like, it's not an accountable body. It's not like he, like what he was arguing if I'm, and I'm paraphrasing and, and working from memory, but he was always arguing that like intelligence gathering should be done by the military, which is under civilian control instead of like having this, like, you know, this, the NSA and the CIA, which, you know, once they get big enough, they just get completely out of control. And like, I've even gotten to the point where I'm paranoid enough now <laughs> to think to myself, well, you know, they they obviously have the capability to watch anybody. That includes the people who would theoretically have some degree of oversight or some ability to curtail their power. So they could turn to a president and be like, you know, privately, they could say, don't fuck with don't fuck with us because we have this on you. We know you did this. We have these photos. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, like, yeah. Well, in some ways, that's what J. Edgar Hoover was doing with the FBI um, in sort of the pre-digital age is he had right. dirt on everybody, right. right? Including heads of state and and, uh, and possibly presidents. So he probably did have those those conversations. But there's a, there's a great uh, Don DeLillo, I think it was his quote, and I'm going to screw it up. But it's basically that intelligence services, their final loyalty is to themselves. Right. So they become these things really apart from the countries and the administrations that they're designed to serve. And in some ways that's almost inevitable because you're creating a group of people and you're saying, we, we understand we live in a world where this type of technique is probably necessary, right? Everybody else is doing it. Basically, if we don't have an intelligence service, we're in trouble because everyone else has one allies and enemies alike, but you're going to have to do things that are either morally problematic or possibly illegal and we kind of don't want to know about them so just don't get caught basically right go ahead and do what you need to do but if i hear about it as the president or whomever there's going to be trouble um and they've built systems so that that doesn't happen but of course sometimes it does happen um but it's an interesting argument it's something i thought about a lot during the book and i'm not sure i have even a personal answer for it as to how do you strike that balance between being a realist and saying, okay, we need some sort of intelligence capability in the world. And yet at the same time, how do we not create a monster that uh, doesn't eat itself or eat us or right. eat everybody else? And we need to have some civilian oversight. Like I, you know, I don't think there, that that exists now. I feel like these things exist apart from um, any kind of oversight by elected representatives. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't understand the inner workings of it well enough, like with regard to like the intelligence, the Senate intelligence committee or whatever, and how they interact with these agencies. And probably that's the way they want it. Right. It's secreted by design. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, there's something about that. I mean, I, I understand the need for state secrets and I understand that, you know, not everything can be aired publicly because, you know, the, there are situations. I mean, I'm not so closed off, you know, right, right. Um, or dogmatic about it. I understand that there are situations where secrecy is probably needed, but um, I guess as a citizen, I worry. Well, and it seems like, and again, the, the problem with a lot of this is that we just don't know, right? You only know what's made public. So we don't know how many times there is pushback, maybe from civilian authorities who say you shouldn't be doing this, or here's why we need to do this, these types of things. We really don't know. Um, but it, it does seem like whenever controls are put in place, it's because something got disclosed. Right. Uh, like, you know, like Edward Snowden. Right, right. Any of the, the controls that are now being put in place, the president just had a, a press conference last week where he said, we're going to, you know, if we're going to collect data from 
uh, phone providers or internet providers were going to use the we're going to use the courts now instead of just like storing it all on these giant servers or wherever they were storing it which seems like kind of how it should have been going all along right and you know i mean i think that's a great step but it was only taken because somebody spilled all the beans. well i was going to say because everyone's you know to, like trying to like diminish what edward snowden did uh like the importance you know i think people on the, on the government side of things uh tend to you know, uh, try to diminish like him, you know, either by calling him uh, a criminal or by saying, you know, that whatever he did isn't going to lead to any changes. But right. yet you look at what's happening and I don't think it happens without him. Well, they have to. He's put them in a very bad position, right? It's like you get caught at something and you sort of know that things have to change, but you can't credit the change to the person who caught you because then you would be admitting that you were doing something wrong in the first place. And there's also a tricky legal thing with, you know, technically he has given away state secrets and any government cannot be in the business of allowing, you know, people to go around giving out classified information. But in his case and in other whistleblower type cases, we right. can say that the greater good is served. Like Ellsberg. Right, right. By that. Um, and, and Daniel Ellsberg was the guy who, uh, the Pentagon papers, did yeah. release the Pentagon papers. Um, yeah, it's not a, it's not a dissimilar, situation really and now we look at ellsberg as a you know as a hero yeah exactly um, but he wasn't at the time he was really vilified not just by the government but in the in the press he was seen as a as a traitor he was a guy who you know even though the information that he was giving everyone read it and said oh my god this is what's really going on it was like it was shooting the messenger basically right well we still don't like what this guy did even though now that he's given us this information we demand change so do you think the same thing's going to happen with edward snowden you think he'll ever get to come home and be a uh, I don't know if people pardoned. care enough. Yeah. I don't know if people are politically active enough. I, I feel like we move so quickly from topic to topic that we're just kind of one big news story away from sort of forgetting about a lot of this and well, forgetting Jim, about him. Uh, and, Jimmy Carter just said the other day that he would consider pardoning him. But, I mean, what, is, what does that matter? If it were 1977, it would be a... Um, yeah, I, I really don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, um, yeah, I, I really don't know. I, I feel where do, like, where, like where do you come? Do you come down on it in a in a, in a um, clear way? You know, I I don't. I probably don't know enough about it. Um, I think I know what pretty much everybody else knows from reading. I haven't read really any deeper. I think than than most reasonably well informed people have. Um, I, I think I would tend to side on on his side. I yeah. think that the things he has disclosed needed to be disclosed. I mean, you can, you never know anyone's motivation. You never know, you know, what was, what's going on with him personally. It's a, it's kind of a fascinating thing to, to try to figure out. Um, but like, like you know, I, I'm instinctively on his side, mm -hmm. even though I think I'm in the same camp with you. Like I, you know, the amount of information that I would have to digest in order to be like really, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? convinced one way or the other like right extremely uh sure of my thinking i would have to you know take in a lot more but i've read some pretty convincing defenses of him and i think uh if i'm recalling correctly like it's not like he just released everything he was pretty no he was no. pretty calculated about what he released right. he didn't which makes a big difference exactly yeah. if somebody just like releases a bunch of stuff that could potentially put um you know decent people in danger or their families in danger like, I can understand that being problematic, but it doesn't seem like that's what he did. Right. And the arguments for him are far more compelling than the arguments against him. You know, yeah. at this point, the arguments against him are maybe he's a Russian agent. Whatever. <laughs> you know? Which, yeah, which seems so uh, improbable. So, 
Yeah, I, I haven't heard a great argument against him, except that technically he broke the law. Um, so it's you know whistleblowing cases are always are always complex. They're always complicated. Um, but no, I, I think I'm like you. I, I tend to side on the truth needs to be out, and then we need to deal with it. Right. Once it's out. Right. And uh, we but should. I, I mean, if we if we want to allow the NSA to collect phone records and do all this stuff, uh, then it, it you know if we decide that, then we should actually decide it by having an open debate about it. Right. As opposed to them just unilaterally doing it and then telling us later or sure. not, or not telling sure. us. But the truth is, we're all very good at outrage. We're very good at at being outraged about a perceived injustice, but going no further. Right. So we watch this, we hear about this on CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whichever, you know, whichever slant you want on the story and you get upset and then it's, but that's kind of it. You yeah. know, I think the number of people who take that to actual political action um, or, or in terms of, you know, organizing or, or trying to get it into an actual debate. I felt this way during Abu Ghraib. I was, I was just starting to research the book when the Abu Ghraib photographs uh, surfaced. And that was sort of one of the things that really, I already had the idea for the book, but it really kind of made it concrete, this idea of the torturer and the tortured um, and, the, and the truth coming out. And I felt at the time that it was, of course, it was all over the news. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing these, these horrendous photos or, or hearing people talk about them. But the talk was about, can you believe this happened? Right. Can you believe this happened? Can we believe this happened? And then that was kind of it. That was like the end of the story. There wasn't any, well, what do we do to, to make sure this doesn't ha Why did this happen? And what systems are in place that allow it or, or that encouraged it to happen? And what do we need to do? Do we want this to happen is a big question. And if we don't, then what do we need to do to prevent it from happening in the future? And I don't feel like that debate was nearly as vociferous or as uh, as as energized as the i can't believe this happened can you believe this happened well okay that's that's an interesting point because there was you know i've um i've read very convincing arguments that president obama when he took office should have allowed for like a fuller investigation and possibly even a prosecution of high-ranking government officials for for the torture program and he didn't because he you know it's like the whole um you know, it's like the pardoning of Nixon or whatever, where, right. you know, it's like we don't want to go backwards in time. We want to go forwards. We don't want to put the country through the trauma of having to air out these truths, which I think is sort of a bullshit argument. Of course. Um, also, you don't want to start prosecuting government officials because someday you'll be an well, ex-government official. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like and then, and then it's also if you start to do an investigation into this, then you start to expose the dirty laundry of these intelligence services and then they're going to be out to get you. Meaning they're going to be out to get the president or whoever it is that greenlights the investigation. So it creates this sort of environment where um, repression of facts and or the suppression of facts and the, um, you know, the keeping the American people in the dark is sort of like systemically ingrained. Well, and there's also a belief and I and I can't speak to it personally because I've never been there. But for people who are you know, very literally on the front lines of national defense, whether you're talking about people in the military or people in the intelligence service, you know, I, and I, again, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I think there's a real belief and it, it may be incredible, you know, and they would look at us talking about this as completely naive, yeah. right? We're well, sitting sure. safely, uh, you know, we have no idea. It's the Jack Nicholson, you know, you can't handle the truth. I'm the guy up on the wall, but there's something to be said for that. I right. mean, this, this is a real a real hot situation for people day in and day out. They're dealing with, with real human lives and real human costs in a way that we aren't. And so I think that not only are the stakes different, but the, 
the math is different. The calculations are different. What what we're willing to do versus what we're not willing to do. Yeah. You know, I'm not willing to do a lot of things, but I live a really comfortable life, you know, and I'm not in charge of the defense of anybody except myself and my immediate family. Yeah, but, but it's a slippery slope. Of course it is. I totally, of course it is. I totally get what you're saying, but it's like, you know, it's the old argument about how many of your liberties are you willing to sacrifice sure, for sure. safety? And it's like when you start getting into that mode, uh, it's a, oh, it never ends. It never ends. Down, well, and that was what that was one of the driving engines of the book was I was trying to create characters who were in that situation and how far were they willing to go, and some go really far and some push back. Um, and and I think that in some ways my my personal opinions have been kind of more muted because I've been thinking about this issue or these issues through the characters for so long right. that I've been able or at least I've tried to empathize with a number of different sides, even sides that at the beginning of the book, I would have said, I absolutely disagree with that. Right. But I knew that if I was going to have characters who did these things, I had to figure out why they had to have good reasons. And so I think in some ways, my personal political opinions have been kind of uh, dampened down because I've now been able to look at this uh, from a number of different perspectives which probably serves the book well but doesn't serve me very well when it comes to like i don't know political debate. well that well yeah political debate doesn't handle nuance well right that's true you know like you and you have like an empathetic view of uh and a prismatic view you know this thing isn't isn't simple um but and people do bad things for seemingly good reasons yeah you know um but, people do bad things for bad reasons too but i mean i think there are this is what the the question about Abu Ghraib that I that I kind of started with was, you know, looking at these photos and you see the the torturers and the tortured and the torturers. You think a year ago, where were these people? Yeah. And most of them are very young. Um, they were in high school. They were in high school. Could they have imagined a year from wherever they were a year before, you know, sitting in the parking lot of the high school getting high or whatever was going on uh, or at the prom? That a year from then they would be in some cinder block room in a country they had maybe never heard of, with a man with a bag on his head and electrodes attached to his to his fingers. Like, how do you get from point A to point B? Yeah, and and that to me was the question I you know I wanted to at least try. It's called Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> well, yeah, it's people putting you in terrible situations, right. certainly, um, and it's also. You know, it's it's indoctrination, it's ideology, it's right. uh, it's my job. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I was told to do it. You well, know, the banality of evil. Sure, you know, sure. it's like the um, it's like you, you can. I mean, there's all different ways to think about this, but you think about like the Nazis and all just the bureaucracy of of evil. Right. How do you turn an entire country into psychopaths? Well, right. And, but it's just like, you know, it's boring. It's just like people who are just like doing their jobs and like, they're middlemen, yeah. they're managers. Yeah. They, you know, get the people on the train. The train leaves at nine. Right. Right. They're going to a concentration camp, you know, well, like, it's compartmentalized. Right. It's, here's my job is this very small part. And I don't really know what it translates into right. on a larger issue. Um, no, you're right. It's, it's very easy to go down one of these slides and to, you know, I don't necessarily like the idea of evil. I think it's kind of an easy way out of out of talking about these things. But but you can certainly find yourself in some pretty terrible situations. Or people have found themselves in some pretty terrible situations pretty quickly. Well, yeah, no, it's interesting what you say about evil because I'm, I'm uneasy around that term as well. Um, I think it's how we let ourselves off the hook about 
discussing reasons things happen. Yeah, it's like oh, they're evil. Like it's some right. like there's some sort of cartoon character who right. they were just born bad because that's the end of the conversation. Yeah, uh, as opposed to well, someone did something terrible. Let's try to figure out why. Right. And we get, may not like the answers. Well, it gets back to nuance right. versus simplicity. Right. You know, people don't want to deal with the complexity and the nuance yeah. of why, whether it's environmental, whether it's neurochemical, whether it's a combination, whether, you know. Uh, well, it's hard to think about and it ends up in some ways usually implicating everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there's, a, if there's a concrete reason someone commits a violent act, well, that could be traced back, not necessarily directly, but culturally, mm-hmm. uh, intellectually, spiritually. It can be traced back to all sorts of things that many of us just take as part of our normal lives. And that's, that's kind of a lot to, to swallow. Yeah, well, I mean, see, like that's, yeah, and that, that, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Like when it comes to good and evil and questions along those lines, um, I think we're all good and we're all evil or the seeds for those particular modes and all their different permutations sure. exist within all of us. And, uh, for some people, the balance is skewed one way for some, for others, it's skewed the other way. But I think once you acknowledge and understand that the potential for, um, good and the potential for evil lie within all of us, including yourself, I mean, that's what we, you got to go into it. Yeah. You well, got to be willing to, you got to be willing to investigate yourself and understand the interrelated nature of people. Right. And why people do things. And there, well, there's a character in the book named Jimmy Dorn, who's probably the closest to like a, a villain as, as the book would have. But, and I'm, whenever I'm asked things about, you know, which character is like you or that sort of thing. And my answer is usually, well, they're all kind of like me. And, and, and someone will say, well, not, well, not Jimmy Dorn. You know, I'll say, well, of course, of course there's me and him. Uh, there has to be. I had to get in and figure out why would somebody do this? Why would someone willingly, he's a character who willingly becomes a torturer. You know, why would he do that? And just saying he's evil, that doesn't interest me. It doesn't interest me as a reader. It doesn't interest me as a writer. It doesn't really interest me as a human being because there's nothing there. Then you just say, well, people are good and people are evil. Yeah. You know, it's like, let's, let's turn off the lights and go home at that point. There's nothing else to, there's nothing else to talk about. Well, there's, I read a fascinating thing online, uh, not too long ago. And it was about this, uh, the first psychiatrist, he was an army psychiatrist in the 19, late 1940s, I guess, early 1950s. But he was the first United States army psychiatrist to interview Nazis. Uh, post-war. So the World War II had wrapped up. They sent him to, I believe, Luxembourg. And they had all these Nazi uh, officials, high-ranking, uh, including, I think, I think it was Hermann Goering. He was like Hitler's right-hand man. I think it was Goering. I might have that wrong. But Hitler's right-hand man was in this, like, uh, you know, it was a, a hotel that they had repurposed as a prison. And he went around and talked to all these people and spent weeks interviewing these people. And he got to know uh, Goering in, uh, I think the most intimate way, he was the most fascinating figure. He was, you know, high ranking and he was apparently like a really like sophisticated, charming guy. Right. right. <laughs> and so the, but this psychiatrist was, uh, interviewing all these guys. And at the end of it, he concluded, and it was like a chilling conclusion that they were normal. He's like, these are, these are not evil monsters. They're normal people who have done these horrible things. And the experience, uh, so, um, unnerved him that over the next decade he like, and I don't think it was necessarily just this experience, but I think this was central to like his undoing. But over the next decade, he sank into like uh, serious depression and alcoholism and wound up um, a decade after Herman Goring to- took his own life with cyanide, taking his Ugh. own life with cyanide right. in front of his family. Ugh. So, I mean, like it's a cra- I didn't, I never heard that story. It's an awful story. 
but it's just like you know it, it's chilling you think this guy came face to face with like the worst kind of human behavior and the people who perpetrated it and he came out of it thinking you know these it's are, possible it's for, possible for anyone including yeah. back home right. and it just completely scrambled him well and there's a there's a process that happens when you're going to commit violence towards someone calculated violence whether it's personal violence or or in a war you you have to dehumanize that person so torturers dehumanize the torture they are not like us they are this person is not quite as human as i am so it's in some ways it's okay for doing this right we talk about this at war war isn't a sin if you're a religious person right you if you kill somebody on the street it's a sin if you kill somebody at war it's not so we've decided that there are there are sort of different rules for this but we you also dehumanize perpetrators by saying that they're evil Right. So I don't want to think about you. You've done this terrible thing. I just want to, I don't want to go into it in the same way that if I'm going to do a terrible thing, I don't want to think about my victim because they're not as human as I am. Right. So we, we, it's almost the same mechanism when we're looking at perpetrators and victims. And I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm coming down on the side of, of perpetrators by any stretch, but, but mentally and emotionally, there's, there's sort of the same mechanism at play when we dismiss behavior as evil, um, is just saying, I don't want to know any more about that person it scares me which right. is understandable it's a very natural human reaction i think but it's not it's not helpful it's not helpful because <laughs> we don't get anywhere with it we just keep having things happen to us like they're acts of god or, or acts of of nature right and we go why do these things happen why do people shoot up movie theaters you know where we don't even say that we just say this person was evil and we right. just kind of hope it doesn't happen again we need to grow of, up well there's a lot of that yeah i think yeah. we need to grow up and i think we need to face down our fears better as people yeah. myself included no I, I would agree i think everybody's in that same boat like, i don't there are very know. few people who really and there are people who sort of fearlessly go into it and, and look at these things clear-eyed and it seems like some of that is starting to happen i feel like especially with public violence we're starting to talk about there are reasons these things happen and we need to look into it so we can try to prevent it rather than just crossing our fingers oh yeah i mean like you can think about like george w bush it was like the axis of evil and sure. when you have sure. uh, you know you have the president uh using casting the world in terms of good and evil mm -hmm. that's not helpful to like the general population i think that's like i don't know i don't mean to throw it all on him but you know what i'm saying no it's just, well and everybody's and is there a world leader who hasn't been compared to hitler in the last yeah. 20 years like no hitler was pretty much in a class you know almost by himself so not everybody else is going to be it's just childish and i'm like you know and there's all this like there's there's all this like uh goodwill and all of this uh what's the word i'm looking for um you know goodwill uh, good um like complimentary views uh of people who are decisive and clear and quick and people who are uh you know nuanced in their thinking sure and have like complex uh, modes of thought are considered wishy-washy uh, you know, you think of like Al Gore, he was constantly painted as that way. Like he's, this guy's, you know, he, he's, it's analysis paralysis and he's not thinking clearly. He's not a bold leader. Right, and right. I understand that you need to be a bold leader sometimes when you're in a position of leadership, but like, I want nuance from people who are in positions of power. Sure. I want complexity of thought. I want, uh, willingness to admit uncertainty. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But a lot of people want dad. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on who everyone's dad was, but I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are still that five-year-old in the back of the car who want, I just want dad to like to make a decision and we're going to do this. And yeah. I'm not going to question it because dad's always right. Yeah. I'm over that. Yeah. That's depressing. So did you see the, the Errol Morris documentary on Abu Ghraib? Yeah. 
You yeah. did. Yeah. What was it called? Why am I forgetting? Oh, gosh, I know. And there was a book too. Um, I can't remember it at all. It was. It was. I mean, I, I'm a fan of his work, anyways. I think right. he really pulls out that nuance. I haven't seen the Rumsfeld one yet. No, but, I'm dying to see um, it. But, but I, Fog of War is a great. And then I'm, I'm also interested. I can't wait to see the Snowden documentary that Laura Poitras makes. Eventually. Yeah, I'm right. Like, I'm way. I'm a big fan of like that whole. Th- you know, Glenn Greenwald and the work that they're doing. Like. I just find like their lives are so fascinating. Like the way that they have to live now. Oh yeah. yeah. The, the lengths to which they have to go to make sure that their communications are not being watched and mm-hmm. the trouble that the government seems to be giving them as journalists just chills me, you know? Yeah. When you read, there was an article in the uh, New York times magazine, I think a couple of weeks what it ago, was. right. Which read like sort of a, a an unbelievable spy novel. It was terrific. Yeah. I love that. Of, it was of the, how they, how they're doing it and how they're, yeah, how their lives have changed, and uh, yeah, her especially. I think she's a fascinating, right, uh, fascinating person. It's going to be a good documentary. That's my hunch. Oh yeah, you yeah. Know? She's how got some it, it not be, some yeah. crazy some crazy good footage. So, uh, how did you get so interested in the CIA? You know, how did you get like what brought you to this? You I don't really you know. know. It's your dad so... work in the CIA, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? No, I can't. He, he worked in the post office next to a guy who was open. He was going. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I don't really know. It's been so long. I. I first started researching this before I wrote my first novel. And then I ended up writing that novel, which was completely a surprise. And that took four or five years. And then this took four or five years. So it's been a long time since I, the initial impulse. And I honestly don't remember. I, I think I was just interested in the early days of American intelligence. Did, you see, did you see The Good Shepherd? Yes, The Good Shepherd came out. Yeah, while I was writing the, the I first love movie. that movie. Yeah, it's a terrific movie. Nobody liked it. I thought it was an awesome it's, movie. It's a very nuanced movie. It's kind of you know, it's funny if you know the history. It's sort of like the CIA's greatest hits, kind of condensed into one person's life. But they do it really well, and the performances are really good. I, I feel like they really captured um, both the kind of moral weight that that people in that business really do carry around with them. I think a lot of the time, the sense of am I doing the right thing, and also just the the boredom of it. Like he's a bureaucrat, right? You know, like he spends a lot of time at his desk and looking at papers and that's what they do. There isn't, you know, spy, (laughs) spy action really isn't like running through the corridors. I mean, it is at times, but, uh, the, the kind of classic East Berlin, West Berlin stuff isn't really how it's, how it's done as much. Um, There's a lot of just drudge drudgery. Yeah. Well, it's a bureaucracy. So there's a lot of, you know, it was funny. I would look at these memos uh, from the from the fifties and sixties of fairly top secret stuff. And the CIA loved. This is probably why they destroyed things. They loved paperwork. There was this sense of like, let's get everything down on paper. And you would see the CC list on some of these things, and there were like fifteen or twenty names. So you could just imagine being the guy in charge of some program, and it was like any other job. Like oh, my ten bosses have to sign off on this, <laughs> and you know, then they all have notes, and they've all got oh, you know, it little sounds things. like Hollywood, right? Right. It's not. It's not that much different. It's the same. The same type of tedium, probably. Did you read uh, what was it? Is it Timothy Weiner? The, the history uh, legacy of ashes legacy yeah, of ashes yeah. yeah well he was the uh, intelligence reporter for the new york times for many years before he wrote that book okay uh, so i'd read a number of his articles uh, and then i read that and that's yeah that's a really good um sort of modern telling of the whole history there's another one called the agency uh, and i'm going to blank on the name of the author i think he was british which came out in the mid 80s which was sort of the same idea big fat like 600 page right. story until now and the, the weiner book kind of um updates that and you know he's got his own reporting and yeah they're both really really nice ways of of looking into that world was that part of your research i mean you had to have yeah the you know i did most of the research in about a year and like i said it was before i'd written my first novel which had nothing to do with this um 
And then I kind of left it alone. So I didn't do a lot of research in the years that followed. I just kind of relied on what I remembered. And I wasn't writing nonfiction, so I felt like the research was really just inspiration points for and me. And you let it stew and kind of yeah, work on your subconscious. Yeah, and, and, and I, I looked back on some really early sketches that I'd made while I was doing the research. And it was just this terrible, like, information heavy. You know, I wanted to get everything in that I knew. <laughs> let me tell you what, what uh, style of shoes these guys wore. And, and, uh, and, and I'm glad that I... I'm glad that the other novel came between because not only did I learn a lot from writing it, but it just let the stuff sit. Yep. And then when I came back to it, I knew that I didn't have to re-research. And I, so I didn't keep up on a lot. I, sometimes I'll find books that, that have come out in the last few years that I completely missed. And I'll, you know, I'm still interested enough to, to pick them up and look into it. But uh, the, the Weiner one came out after my research was pretty much finished, although I think I did read it kind of toward the end of... I don't know, one of the drafts. And then this, this Snowden thing happens. Like, yeah, you, that you was way have, after, way after. But you must have felt like there's some sort of, like, I, I, I you know, I think when you're working on a novel, because it almost always takes, uh, or any kind of book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, and it's taking place over a long period of years, as it usually does, and then something happens in the culture, or you pick up a book and happen to be reading something, and you see these weird synchronicities, or... Did you find that you're, did you find yourself thinking, wow, everyone's, there's a lot of chatter about the intelligence community right now. I've been thinking about this stuff. Did it give you a sense that maybe your instincts were good or that like, they're <laughs> lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. It was, it was a total surprise except for the fact that this stuff always comes around. There's like a 10 year cycle. Every 10 years, there's some kind of intelligence or sort of military disclosure that gets everybody all up in arms. So it's not, it's not completely unexpected. But no, I, I can remember when I was kind of deep in the book, the writing of the book, maybe the second year in and wondering, like, is anybody going to care about this? And I, and I was really writing it. And I still think of the book as, as really a family novel that happens to be about people who are involved in the, in the CIA. So it's not a, it's not a Tom Clancy, you know, kind of hardcore espionage book. It's a literary thriller. That's what, that's what they say. That's what they say. Um, so, I was really thinking, well, is the, is this part going to be of interest to anybody? And, and since it's come out, that's what I, I talk about more than anything is the history of, of the CIA and the history of these projects, which I'm not really an expert on, but that's what people want to talk about because of what has happened recently. Um, and my guess is if the Snowden stuff hadn't happened and if some of these other things hadn't happened in the last year, um, that wouldn't really be the, the topic of conversation around the book. Yeah, no, I see. I, be I'm, I believe in the collective consciousness thing, and I think like you know, writers who are thinking deeply about stuff or feeling deeply, you can tap into that, or you can, you can, you know, I, I don't want to sound too, uh, yeah, no, too I, much I magical understand. thinking, yeah, but no, I think there's, there's something there's to some it. Of that. And yeah. there's also something to be said for the fact that we kind of keep replaying the same stories in our lives. Right. So that it's very rare that something happens that's so completely out of the blue that we've never dealt with before. And when it does, of course, it's a huge, huge shock. But uh, but most of the time, we're kind of on a cycle. Of, well, yeah. Well, who's the writer? I, I forget who said it. it was like Genet or something or something like that. I want to say it was a French author. But he's like, yeah, everything's already been said before, but you need to say it again because nobody was listening. The right. <laughs> no, that's, that's absolutely true. And that's to say the same thing about people's lives, right? Our lives aren't all that different than each other's lives or, or, you know, the lives that have come before us are different because of technology and because of the way the world has changed. But our interior lives our emotional lives aren't necessarily all that unique, but telling about them is unique and reading about them is unique. Yeah. Well, no, it's like the personal is, un the personal is universal, right? Like if you want to say something universal, don't try to say something universal. <laughs> right. That's a, right. That always no one cares what style of shoes these guys were wearing in right. 1955. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so the LSD experiments, the brainwashing stuff, that whole um, part of the CIA history that factors into your book. Uh, you know, you did a lot of research. Did you drop acid? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I didn't. The book doesn't. Um, it, it, the the parts of the book that deal with the LSD experiments are far more from the uh, perspectives of the men who were conducting. The experiment. But still, that, you need to know who, uh, what the subjects were going through. What is going through. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a fiction writer. It's an imaginative <laughs> leap that I'm, I'm willing to take. Um, no, and these guys would not have done it, you know. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't necessarily feel as, as – Have as you ever novelist. done it in your life? Uh, no. Never have? No. Um, and I don't really feel that as a, as a, a fiction writer you need to have a personal experience hey, with – You don't need to die um, to play death, right? Right, right, you exactly. Know. Nobody would ever write science fiction or um, – but I've certainly had experiences, you know, of one form or another where you think this is, you know, I've left whatever, you like know, what? whatever realism behind. Well, hasn't everybody had those kind of, uh, I don't know. I mean, is there one like in particular, did you ever have like an out of body experience when you were like sleeping or something or, Oh, probably when I'm sleeping. Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, but nothing like you can't point to like when you were a child, you saw a ghost or some no, crazy memory. Or... No, I, but I can remember moments where you, yeah, I can remember moments of just feeling like. You were closer to some truth that was hidden, yeah. if that makes any sense. That there was something else going on, right. and I had no idea what that thing was, and I still have no idea what it is. And, and you know, I grew up Catholic. So I grew up in a Catholic family. So there were, in some ways, there were explanations in place for things where you would think, well, that was God, or that was, you know, whatever that was. Um, but, I, you know, it, it didn't take me too long not to really buy into that as, as fully as I had as a child. So no, yeah, there are just moments where you, you sort of feel like did the curtain just slip a little bit, you know, not to sound too, <laughs> not to sound too mystical about it, no. but I think there's also a scientific basis for all that, or obviously there's a scientific basis for all this stuff. And there's the idea that, you know, and it seems like even just in the last few weeks or months, we've discovered like scientific discovery has just accelerated to the point we're talking about you know, the breath of the big bang, you know, now we yeah. can see this and we can start to see, and, and we're, we're kind of putting some of these pieces together. And the idea that there's a truth there, like we're just uncovering things. These things aren't, when these things aren't discovered, they don't come into being the, the story's already out there. The story's already been told and we're just finding it kind of piece by piece in the dark to me is, is just completely fascinating. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've done, uh, like I think before we got started, I was talking about my experiments, you know, as a kid, uh, or a young man, I should say, um, taking hallucinogens in kind of like idiotic ways, you sure. know, as you do when you're like 19 years old, but, um, powerful life experiences that are hard to articulate. Right. And I think part of that is just the manner in which I took them, which like, you know, at a, at a, um, a concert or whatever right, a fish a, concert that's still going on <laughs> just some just like you know being terrified in a stadium sure. full of raving people but having a powerful experience mm -hmm. um and then what you know coming out of it and i think this is common you come out of it and you're like that was huge like what the fuck just happened and especially because i think my bearing going into the experiences was not principally and i think this might have differentiated me from some of my friends you know at the time is that i was always really interested in like the spiritual component to it for lack of a better way of putting right. it like i was like what is this going to teach me about being what does alive? it mean yeah i, I want to learn something right i don't want to just like feel good and like see pretty colors mm. or whatever you know though that was <laughs> though that was part of it um and the the most that i can take away from it is exactly what you were just talking about which is that 
there's more to meet the there's more than meets the eye there's something else going on here there's a deeper reality that i'm not seeing and if that's all that it taught me that's still a very powerful lesson i think in some way right you know? there's a door that's now open in a way it just was con- it's it, it it convincingly gives me the the sense um in a very visceral way that like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Right. And I'm happy to know that. <laughs> well, and there was this study recently, right. Where I think it was in, in the United kingdom where they were doing controlled trials with terminally ill patients on LSD using LSD. Did yeah. you hear about that? Yeah, yeah. I read that was in the New York times magazine as well. And it was in, there's been um, a lot, I've been paying attention to a lot of that stuff on the internet um, because a lot of people write these really moving, right deeply intelligent, interesting accounts of, you know, having a terminal illness, taking, uh, you know, participating in like a university study Mm -hmm. where they're in a controlled environment, they receive psilocybin, uh, or they receive LSD and it makes them feel a hundred percent better about their situation. Some of them are term, you know, they're terminally ill. There's no way out. Well, Um, and there's also something I think so brave and so, so brave on the part of the patients and so sympathetic on the part of the, whether they're doctors or, or professors or whomever's doing it, of this idea that you have a terminal illness, you're going to die probably fairly soon. Let's do this thing together where it's about as close to a dress rehearsal for death as we're going to get. Right. In that you don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't tell you what kind of experience you have. You're going to be terrified by this, at least going in. You know, the, the anticipation of doing it is probably going to be terrifying. The experience may not be. It may be. I can't tell you what it's going to be. But let's sit down and do this so that you're just – and that's what they – I think what they said in the article was that people – their anxiety about death went down. Right. Because it was almost like, well, no, I haven't died, but I made this very courageous – Leap! I tried this thing that under normal circumstances I would have been terrified to do with the understanding that this is what death is. Nobody can tell you what it's going to be like. Nobody can tell you what sort of, you know, if there's anything or not. And so the idea of trying to at least ease someone into that to me seems seems pretty beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like, and who knows? Like, maybe it's like, maybe it's some sort of like, not placebo effect, but it's just that, that psychological act of taking a leap and going into like psychological space. That's really intense and unfamiliar Yeah, is like you say, it's a dress rehearsal. Well, I think it would be that leap would be the important thing. The experience would almost be secondary right. to the, I'm going to do this. I'm doing it. But there, there's also like, I was listening to, uh, of all you, Zachary Kinto was on Howard Stern a few you know weeks ago. And he was talking about going down to uh, Peru, I think it was, and doing ayahuasca in the in the rainforest, right. which Robin Quivers has done. Like okay. she went down there sure. as a tourist and like was, you know, she's in the jungle with some shaman drinking this stuff, and then you get violently <laughs> ill into a bucket, and I mean, it's just it sounds horrible. But yet, uh, they both spoke of it so calmly and rationally uh, and convincingly, and talked about it in like reverential ways about how it was like one of the best experiences of their Hmm. lives. It permanently um, shifted their consciousness and made them less afraid of things that had bothered them, you know, their whole lives and, you know, on and on and on. And you hear enough of these stories and you think to yourself, or at least I think to myself that at the very least, you know, in a controlled environment with doctors or, you know, with really intelligent people, you know, behaving responsibly, that there could be real therapeutic value. Oh, at, sure. At the very least, sure. you know, especially when it comes to dealing with, um, you know, uh, the really deep 
dark stuff like mortality mm-hmm. or whatever, you know? Well, I've been doing some research uh, into people who've had really uh, extreme religious experiences, right? Um, across all sorts of religions. And, you know, then the question is, if you're not a religious person, I think the impulse is often to say somebody's delusional, right? Or they had some kind of neurological event or they sort of amped themselves up to the point of believing that something was happening. But from a, you know, from a completely subjective perspective, something did happen. You know, whether or not I believe it happened is almost irrelevant to their experience. It's not irrelevant to science. It's not irrelevant to do these things happen, but it's irrelevant to how does that change somebody? And what if you removed religion from that equation? Would people still have those experiences? Yeah. People have neurological events. People have, you know, sure. atheists have moments where it's like, what was that? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what just happened? Um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about me. Like, I mean, just speaking personally, like when it comes to atheism, like I'm not prepared to like, like you say, like someone could declare themselves an atheist, but then have some sort of like, you know, quote unquote, supernatural experience or some experience, uh, on ayahuasca where they, they come into contact with, uh, realms of consciousness or whatever it is that make them feel very deeply that there's more than meets the eye. Uh, who knows? Well, it also seems so, so completely self-centered that, uh, you know, over the last however many thousands of years, we've sort of forced our ideas on each other of this is what it is, thinking that we could ever really figure it out. Well, that's, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> no. I didn't say it well enough, but it's like when it comes to atheism, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm closer, I guess, to atheism than I, am to, than I am to the Catholicism of my youth. But like where I really am is I don't fucking know. Right, right. And that's anyone it. who tells you they do. Right. Right. It, yeah, it's a... Uh, no, that's that's where it gets so fascinating for me is that that like I said that idea of, of the discoveries in science of well no it's all out there it's it's there it's already been done right we just have to figure out what it was you meaning the things have happened and we've got to go do the investigative yeah work. yeah I mean the mystery is the the crime has already been committed right existence exists and and there's a reason for it somewhere sure. whatever yeah. that reason is whether it's just cells multiplying. Um, and what someday, do you think? Do you have any ideas? I have no idea. Is this, no. Uh, this research that you're doing about people who have had these big religious experiences for a, a forthcoming book? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so early that I have no idea how, or if it will, it'll factor in, but it's, it's something that, that I think came out of half world, this idea of people who've had very extreme experiences and have a, they have an explanation for it. And most other people may disagree with that explanation and whether or not the explanation matters uh, as opposed to the experience mattering, what the experience does to a person. Yeah. Um, and the ways we try to look for those experiences, like you're saying, you might take uh, psychotropic or uh, psychedelic drugs. You might uh, go to the James Terrell exhibition at LACMA. You might go out in the desert. You might listen to me. You know, you might go to a uh, mass. You might, there's all sorts of ways that we kind of try to bring these things on ourselves. Um, and why we do that and what it means when they happen. And does it mean, is it important that it's merely a subjective experience and not an objective experience or does it, does it not matter? Yeah. And I think about like, you know, you, you seem to be drawn to extreme experiences or at least like the contemplation of, you don't, you seem like a, a non-extreme guy, right? You're not somebody, you're not like a daredevil <laughs> or are you, do you have some sort of like, I, did, I came down the side of your building before the... <laughs> you repelled into my <laughs> yeah. office. Yeah. Uh, no, I think I, I think I live a fairly non-extreme life, but I am drawn to characters that are, um, that are on the border. I'm really interested in people and characters who live on the border between what we consider like a normal 
civilized existence and then the other way of living yeah and and characters who cross from one side to the other and if they're able to get back if they want to get back what pushes them one way or another or why do they decide to make that leap so i'm always I'm, i've always been interested in characters right on that fault line um, do you yeah, feel like you're experience. on that fault line i feel like everybody is to some degree i mean i think we're all kind of at, at if you could map it, it'd be like one of those earthquake maps where the dots kind of spread out there. I'm sure there are people who are really far from that line and nothing would ever create an extreme experience for them. And then there are people who seek it out and live, or at least try to have, you know, live in those experiences. And you could probably argue that neither of those is a very healthy way to live. But I think most of us probably congregate more toward, toward the center, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I have, I constantly entertain these ideas of like, moving off the grid or living in some like much more uh, unconventional life, you know, it's just like, there's a lot, I always get stuck in the actual like details of it. Like, well, how do you pay for this? (laughs) (laughs) It all sounds so great. And then what am I going to do? Yeah. And then once I'm out there and it's like, you know, but there are people you want to believe there are people who pull that off every once in a while. I'll hear of like a life story about somebody who's like, yeah, they live on a yeah. boat. They raise their kids in foreign countries, and they f- sail around, and it's like this like totally bohemian thing. But and- that's different than the moment that changes you. I think what I'm interested in is the moment that changes you, as opposed to seeking out a different way of living. Yeah, it's more of the I'm going, I'm minding my own business, and then suddenly, boom, you know, whatever it is, which we've all had. You know, if, if you if you've had a child, if you've had a medical emergency, if you know, there's all sorts of if you've been involved in some kind of violence. And we've all had those moments that like are not that far off. I don't think from those existential experiences we were talking about where it's almost like the day gets ripped open Yeah, and we can see that there's something else there and maybe it's pleasant and maybe it's unpleasant, but there's and, and part of that might just be a chemical reaction, right? It might just be adrenaline flooding us. But, uh, but those moments where the 95% of our life that is lived normally or without those experiences are, are kind of cratered. Uh, buy an experience like that. And then if someone just kind of goes around the crater and goes back to what they were doing or holds that with them forever and thinks about it or goes completely in the other direction because of that, I I always find that fascinating. Well, okay. And I wonder about this too, because you're touching on something that uh, confuses me and that, and that is, you know, I think people sometimes change, but is the change permanent? Like, like for example, you know, somebody goes through some sort of, uh, you know, extreme situation, extreme loss, painful experience, and then they decide they're going to change their ways or they're going to make some life shift. It feels like people do that. And then they eventually kind of fall back into their old mode. Like, do you believe that like permanent change is? I guess it's possible. I think it's possible, but I think it probably requires disciplined attention. Yeah. You know, I think any change you want to make is probably possible. Now, now we're getting something... into self-help. This is good. <laughs> right, right. And for 1995, <laughs> I can tell you how to do it. Uh, no, I, I completely see what you're saying, but I think that I, I think it's possible. I think you can have an extreme experience and decide that I'm going to do something different because of this. But I don't think the experience is probably enough. You know, I think you need to want to do something differently. Well, see, that's the thing. That's that's kind of where I'm at with it because I feel as a person, and I think this is a common way to feel that, like you know, you're you're sort of stuck with who you are. You, you kind of are who you are, and you want to do well in life, whatever that means. You want to, or you know, I find myself wanting to kind of like when I was talking earlier about these people who live these unconventional lives. There's a part of me that wants to like break out or like, right? You but know, you have your personality, and but I have my personality, and I'm bound by it, and like. 
I, I think sometimes you might be able to have some sort of like massive event in your life that causes like this sudden like boom and like you shift and things change. Sure. But more often than not, and I mean overwhelmingly more often than not, uh, it, when you talk about like disciplined attention and like methodical hard work over a long period of time, that's kind of where I'm at with it now. Like it's not likely that I'm going to experience some sort of like massive leap or shift. No. It's going to be... That, not gonna, that would last. Yeah. If I'm going to make like really like lasting changes or become this, you know, this or move closer to the ideal version of myself, you know, that I'm thinking of or whatever, you have to uh, practice. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like we all have our little rituals or our beliefs or our religions or whatever it is that we do to like, uh, or, or we read, right. you know what I'm saying? Right. Whatever it is that you, you self-educate. But if you if you do that in fits and starts, or you only do it when like, you know, the shit hits the fan, and right. then you recede back into like static and distraction and whatever old sure. patterns. It's like in. going to the gym on New Year's Day. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think like maybe at this age, like kind of as I'm at you know whatever midlife, I finally just been like, all right, fuck it. You actually have to work at this. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't come easily. It doesn't come easily, and you got to stick with it. And you know, it requires discipline. And I think that's hard for people. It's well, hard for me. and think about two things we've learned in the not so not so distant past about, on one hand, brain plasticity, the idea or the the fact that you can sort of rewire, you know, through what you're talking about, through sort of disciplined behavior, you can change your impulses, you can change your behavior, and and you can, you know, more or less rewire the way you think. But we've also learned about more about evolution and about DNA being passed down, and there are traits, there are uh, these kind of echoes of our ancestors that may be multiple generations back that do come through. Uh, in our genetic makeup. So on, on one hand, you have this possibility that I, I can be anybody I want to be. I can make any kind of decision I want to make as long as I, I focus on that and I work on that. And on the other hand, you have this sort of like, uh, you know, sort of old world Protestant, uh, you know, no, this is your fate. And, you know, <laughs> all these, all of the decisions of the people before you have, have added up to you. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I like to think I, I'm more in control of my own. I believe in both. Yeah, no, I, I don't think they're, they're exclusive. No, but, but they, they both make sense to me. Like, I feel like I am my ancestors. I am my parents. I am all of my ancestors. I'm like w the walking version of them. Right. They're somewhere in me, you know, their information is somewhere coded mm -hmm. in me. And so you get the opportunity to, uh, you know, build upon the rights and correct the wrongs. Yeah. You know? And yeah, to take what you will from it and to, to go on. I, I think that's, I mean, that's hopefully the way that it is. If it's not the way that it is, it's healthy to believe that it is. <laughs> right. Well, and if your brain is, is plastic, then it's okay. You'll eventually believe that and it'll be it'll And be so true. this brain plasticity thing, because I think I've read something like that on the internet, but that you really can like rewire oh, yeah. the circuitry. Well, they've done trials with stroke victims who, you know, have had have had actual damage, right? Parts of their brain are, are gone because of this this event. And uh, and through through continued therapy, through a lot of hard work, you know, they're able to rewire. Or, or people with uh, with bad habits, you know, or habits they consider to be to be negative, um, by by conditioning themselves, and they and they see a physical change. Yeah, um, like they can map it with like yeah, some sort yeah. of like brain yeah, scan. Absolutely, thing. but it's and it's not the kind of thing that happens overnight. But but you can you know. Well, so for, for anybody listening out there who's uh, who feels completely <laughs> fucked in their lives, you can rewire your brain. That's right. Start you heard, now. You heard it here. Check back in a week. <laughs> but I wonder what you do because, like, I think like, uh, you know, I mean, I think getting away from the internet, especially if you feel scattered, you know, in your mental, especially, you know, I think yeah. about concentration and attention and I think that's what we lack. That's what we're lacking. And it's not to say that 
the generation before us were these hyper concentrated, hyper focused people. You know, uh, you but just have to watch Mad Men. It was slower. It was slower, and they were distracted by other things. You know, but I think that that's definitely something, and I feel it just in the last. I'm always a late adopter to everything, so uh, you know, I didn't get a, a cell phone until late. I didn't get a smartphone until late. But I, I definitely have felt my concentration slip in just the last couple of years since I've had a phone where I can, you know, check the Red Sox score every. 15 minutes yeah i've been tweeting throughout this whole interview by the way right i noticed (laughs) without even moving your hands which is (laughs) you've trained yourself to do it um no and there's something to be said for the you know the amazing flow of information that has happened in the last decade or two decades but um there's also something to be said for choosing what you're going to focus on yeah and i say this as somebody who isn't great at it either um i don't think i there are very few people people like the thing about it is that like you it's very difficult to use these things and then be good at uh, selectivity or discipline. Yeah. It's like the people who are really good at this are the people who are just foregoing it entirely. Yeah. Well, the know? best thing I ever did, I wrote both of these novels, or at least most of the second one, all the first one, on a, on a Mac laptop I bought on eBay, which would now be more than 10 years ago, um, that had no internet connectivity. Oh. Um, which now I don't do. And maybe it, it died, so I can't go back to it. But it was one of these, you know, it was like 65 pounds, this giant. Whenever I would use it in coffee shops, people would come up and like want to touch it because they remembered it as their first <laughs> laptop. And it had, you know, I'd plug it into the wall and like the air conditioning would dim. And, and uh, <laughs> But it was great because there was no, you know, after you got over the anxiety of I want to check my email or I want to, you know, this was before Twitter, but it was still that I want to see what's going on in the world. You kind of settled into you know, whatever space you needed to be in for an hour or two hours or three hours to work. And then you could go and, and check all this, this stuff you probably didn't need to know about. But, um, yeah, well, there are services now, right? You can pay well, there's, internet yeah. companies to block you. Well, there's software, there's software that'll, you know, turn off your access or I forget what it yeah. is. I can't, I've tried to use them in the, like I tried to install this like bell in my computer that would like ding out so I could like take a moment <laughs> And it just annoyed the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, it's I'm trying to tweet. To I'm trying to tweet. Yeah, please. I'm <laughs> and I would just turn it off. I would just be like, ah, oh, this is... And just, it didn't work. So I think like... You're tweeting about the bell. I mean, you know, yeah. wanting to. It just... I, I got to find something else. Or I think too, like I need to get back to writing by hand. Uh, I wish I could do that. I yeah, think, that could be helpful. Though my handwriting is so... has gotten so bad that yeah. I have to... If I do it, it's I have to transcribe art. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, well, there are ways to do it. But. This has been uh, this has been fun. I, like we didn't get to like your uh, your life history. Good. We didn't, we didn't get yeah, we didn't get to all the nitty gritty about your personal life. But we had a lot to talk about um, that I haven't really had a chance to talk about on this uh, show. So it's been really fun. Uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you. I'm, I'm fingers crossed for you because I feel like there could be a movie in this. I don't know if that's even something you care about, but or one about my life history, which or... <laughs> is really interesting. But unfortunately, we haven't yeah. touched on it. So, uh, congrats and thanks Thank for coming you. over and taking the time. Oh, to no, talk. thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Okay, folks, there you go. That's it. That's Scott O'Connor. His novel is called Half World. Go get it. It's available now from Simon and Schuster. You can find him online at scott-o'connor.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this program and to access the full archives. Uh, You get the app. It's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. And then if you want to listen to the deeper archives, you can sign up for premium for a couple of bucks right there inside of the app. So please do that. Go get the app. The app is free. The app is wonderful. I like the app. 
I also liked that conversation. Scott was great. He indulged uh, my fascination with uh, hallucinogens and seems to share uh, my midlife trepidation over ingesting any of them. Though, I, you know, he seems to just have trepidation, period. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I sort of feel like a baby about that. I, j- I should just go to the jungle. I should put my money where my mouth is. I should go to Peru, find myself a shaman, uh, vomit into a bucket, be terrified for 12 hours, and just get it over with. This is what it's all leading to. <laughs> this is my future. Please remember that uh, one of St. Jerome's letters to St. Augustine took nine years to be delivered and that Django Reinhardt grew up in a gypsy caravan and was essentially illiterate. That's it for now. Thanks again to Scott O'Connor. Go get his book. Thanks to you, as always, for listening. I really appreciate that. And uh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. And uh, I'm going to go drop off some luggage and I'm going to go hang out with my nieces. That's what I'm going to do. It's nothing but little girls in my family. That's it. My parents have four grandkids, all girls. It's a swarm of uh, females under the age of eight. And uh, naturally, I'm the favorite. I'm their favorite uncle. They look to me for wisdom and guidance and mansplaining. <laughs> I'm setting a terrific example for them. This is how you build an empire, girls, right here. One episode at a time. <laughs>